0: Hello and welcome back to the Gene Wolf Literary Podcast by Clay Temple Media. I'm Glenn McDorman. And I'm Brandon Buddha. In this episode, we are going to be covering
1: not a Gene Wolf story, but instead Flowers for Algernon by Daniel Keyes. This story was originally published in the magazine of fantasy and science fiction
0: in 1959. This is another episode in our string of episodes here on the show that were commissioned by Patreon supporters. I was really excited to read this story. And so I just want to say a huge thank you to the listener, the supporter who commissioned this episode.
1: Yeah, thank you so much. I was really happy to revisit this story. I haven't read it since eighth grade, and I'm really glad to revisit it. I had a great time reading it a second time around. I think it's required reading for a lot of kids. So I was really... Happy to read it now as an adult, and we'll get into all of that as we go along. But Glenn, let's recap the story for those who don't already know it. Well, we try
0: pretty hard here to preserve the narrative technique of the story that we're recovering, the author we're talking about, or at least to share a good chunk of that technique with you. But in this case, that is, I think, going to be very difficult to do. Flowers for Algernon is a first-person story, and it is a series of journal entries. These are called progress reports. The progress that is being reported on is the progress of the narrator. Uh, His name is Charlie Gordon, and he's 37 years old. The journal charts his progress from having an intellectual disability with an IQ measured in the 60s to having an abnormally high intellectual ability with an IQ just over 200. So in these early entries, Keyes has Gordon write with a lot of spelling errors, write with a lack of punctuation. And that works, I think, really well. It's really effective storytelling visually, right, on the page, but it is not going to translate well to audio. And so I am not going to try to preserve that, but I do hope that we can talk about the merits of how Keyes does this in the discussion. But all right, with that caveat out of the way, let's get into the story for, for real here. So we begin in March of 1965, and Charlie's first few entries describe him at a laboratory taking some psychological tests in order to see if he is a good candidate for an experimental medical procedure. That procedure is a type of brain surgery, and it is intended to increase Charlie's intellectual ability, though the doctors caution that any increases will probably be temporary, and Charlie has been recommended for this trial by his teacher at a night school for people with intellectual disabilities. Uh, her name is Miss Kinnian. And Charlie participates in a Rorschach test and also a thematic apperception test. That's a phrase that we have used a lot on this show <laughs> recently. But Charlie doesn't really comprehend these tests or, or comprehend their purpose, And from his perspective, at least, he really frustrated the psychologists who were even administering these tests. And Charlie also meets a mouse named Algernon, and he has to race Algernon in solving a maze, and Algernon the mouse wins. And Charlie is worried that he is not going to be chosen for this experiment, and he's present when the two scientists who are conducting this trial have an argument about that and we're going to learn more about these scientists later, but for now, what matters is that Dr. Niemer is hesitant to use Charlie, but Dr. Strauss convinces him that Charlie is a really good candidate here. And Charlie's very excited.
1: Keyes does such a great job at the opening of this story here, not just by you know, using the uh, craft technique that you mentioned at the top of the show here, Glenn, but really in giving us character motivations. We learn. Charlie wants to be smart. He has some kind of mysterious internal drive that pushes him to want this. We also learn about the character traits of some of the doctors that are revealed, or at least, you know, as a duo, we learn that doctors Niemer and Strauss are prone to conflict about the experiment. And that at least a part of this conflict over choosing Charlie as a candidate has to do with. This mysterious innate drive that Charlie has. That we learned that Dr. Niemer in particular is concerned about this kind of innate ambition that Charlie has. And, you know, Niemer is the driving force behind this experiment. What he wants, Niemer, is to make a new breed of supermen. So, actually, like what I picked up on in this read was that we're getting something pretty dark going on in the background of this story. Some of the scientists who'd almost certainly be villains in a comic book type of setting uh, are acquiescing to have Charlie triple his intelligence. Even though there are some qualms about this, there are some things about Charlie that can't quantitatively be measured. Um, you know, and that inability to have a quantitative measurement on Charlie's drive and motivation are concerning. They almost make him ineligible for the experiment, uh, and so yeah, there's so much going on here. So much clarity in the uh, jumble of Charlie's prose. It's such a great opening to this to the story, and
0: I, I'm blown away by it. I am as well. I I think the way that Keyes has has already built up the world of his story... For himself, right? Perhaps through some discovery writing, or you know what we're seeing here, perhaps is just excellent use of a revision process. But that he's able to describe that world from the perspective of an outsider, essentially, who doesn't grasp everything. And this is a fairly common thing that we get in speculative fiction. This is how you know, this is certainly one of the ways that you can introduce readers to your your fantasy world or you know your space opera world or whatever that might be but it's unusual for us to get that in what is uh, you know for for the you know what is a contemporary setting though for us this is now a historical setting but at the time was a contemporary setting and i really love the way that he is able to to do this he, he makes this world seem really mysterious he shows us that there is something happening behind the scenes something that is, I guess, a kind of mystery that we're going to want to know more about. And it's a really excellent hook at the beginning of the the story that already has some other hooks too, right? Because we're also emotionally invested in, in Charlie. Charlie is an extraordinarily strong character with an explicit goal, an explicit objective, and he has a means of achieving that goal. And we want him to achieve that goal, which is, that's how short stories are really meant to, meant to work. <laughs> that's a highly successful short story uh, format or formula there. So yeah, Keyes is working here with, I think, two real hooks that get us to buy into, to invest in this story. One in the, the character's goals and the other in the, the sort of mystery of the world. It's awesome. I, and I just, you know, before I, I turn the mic back over to you
1: here, Glenn, to continue along, I really want to emphasize the language that, you know, Charlie overhears about wanting to create Supermen and the uneasiness that I think that's meant to cause the audience, though it's sort of buried in Charlie's um, inability to approach just what Dr. Niemer and Strauss are trying to achieve.
0: Yes, I think there will be a lot of fodder for discussion here about where this story fits in the story of eugenics and attempts at designing and engineering super people, perfecting humanity. Uh, I think that's an important context for this story for sure. Keys also worked for
1: Stan Lee, I should point out, for a good part of the 50s and I think into the 60s as well. And so he 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 was deeply immersed in that sort of comic book world. And uh, I don't think that's going to play into our discussion too much. But I, I, it's just to
0: say that Keys knows exactly what he's doing here. <laughs> Yeah. yeah. What we don't realize is that directly across the street from this laboratory is the uh, museum where Peter Parker is getting bitten by a radioactive spider right. at the exact same <laughs> moment. Exactly. All right. Well, Charlie has his operation on March 10th, and then we get his next journal entry on March 15th. And I'm going to recap now up through April 20th, though I am going to do it a bit out of order for for people who are are, are reading along with us here. Charlie stays at the lab for a while as the scientists conduct more tests, and Charlie also has to keep racing the mouse Algernon, I mean, just over and over again, but Algernon always wins. But Charlie now knows that Algernon has had the same surgery that he has and is three times as intelligent as Algernon was before. Now, Charlie is discharged from the, the hospital or the laboratory's care, and he returns to his normal life, though he does have to go back to the lab for an hour every night for continued testing. At the end of the month, Charlie stops coming to the lab because, well, he he hates losing the race to Algernon every single time. And so Dr. Strauss comes to see him at his home and he gives Charlie a TV that he has to play while he sleeps. We don't really know what this device is or what it's playing, but I guess the idea is that it is doing something to stimulate neurological activity while Charlie is sleeping. And now we see Charlie's intellect developing. Uh, We also see his emotional intelligence developing as well. He develops a real empathy for Algernon's captivity. He's also reading Robinson Crusoe with Miss Kinion. And Miss Kinneyan begins to teach him about punctuation, which he doesn't get right, but about which he is extremely enthusiastic. And this is one of the places where I think seeing the text on the page is just a lot of fun. We also get a glimpse of Charlie's life. Charlie is a janitor at a, it's a factory of some sort. And when he returns to work, he is obviously recovering from some surgery, a kind of head surgery, and people at the factory make jokes about it. These jokes are not kind. They're, they're pretty mean, actually. But Charlie thinks that these jokes mean that people like him and are his friends. Now, they aren't his friends. We, the readers, we know it. And it's heartbreaking that Charlie doesn't know it. I mean, this is, this is really visceral here in this, this part of the story. And in early April, some of these so-called friends take Charlie out for drinks at Muggsy's Saloon. And they get Charlie drunk, and they laugh at his antics, and then they send him out to get a newspaper and a coffee. But then while Charlie is gone, they just leave the bar. And Charlie doesn't know how to get home from here, and so a police officer has to get him home. And it turns out that Charlie rents an apartment from an old woman named Mrs. Flynn. This is you know, rooms in a boarding house, essentially. Now, the last entry in this progress report is from April 20th, and Charlie writes about another time that these friends have had him out. And again, they invite him out just to make fun of him. But this time, Charlie realizes that that's what's going on, and it's it's really tough to read this entry. But this is an important part of the story, a uh, really important part of the story. But these people make this a pretty tough read for me.
1: Th- this story was taught in
0: my eighth grade English
1: class. I was on the... Like non academic track in middle school. Uh, So I can't be sure if it was taught in any of the other eighth grade classes, though I suspect it was because, in part, of what we see so much of in this section. You know, I I vividly recall um, not reading this part of the story, but seeing in eighth grade Cliff Robertson's performance as he realized that people were making fun of him in the film. Charlie, that's based on on, on the novel uh, that's based on the short story. You know, when you're a kid, I don't know if you think so much about the fact that other people with feelings exist, and you can be pretty cavalier about hurting other people in the name of good fun. And I think what Keyes has done here is set up a really strong contrast between real empathy for others, you know, thinking about how you might feel if you were in another person's position, um, or maybe finding an analog to their situation that you can relate to, and just a sense of uh, a type of bonhomie, maybe. And, and what I find to be brilliant in Keys's brief exploration of this topic here in this passage, in this section, is the way that Charlie is learning about empathy, not just in this coworker business, but through his felt connection with Robinson Crusoe. It's a novel that he's reading. And then he realizes that he's the butt of his coworker's jokes and that he doesn't actually have friends and that he's as alone as Robinson Crusoe is. And Charlie realizes then that he's the core part. Of a sustained dynamic of really a, a cruel uh, geniality, a cruel bonhomie, and keys captures the difference then between genuine care for others and that good time feeling, and it's just beautifully done. It is so affecting, but that isn't actually what stands out to the story to me now. This this empathy bits, the empathy bits, as I've said, are very effective, um, but I don't know if the impact they once had on me. Quite still holds. Maybe I've learned empathy. Uh, you'd have to ask people who know me whether or not that's true. <laughs> um, but I'll just point out a few more things that show up here. Um, so that we can bring them up in our discussion as, as I highlight them. But first of all, besides this surgery that makes you smart. There's this other sci-fi element to the story that's brought up here and that's the sleep training device which is somehow designed to teach the subconscious mind of the sleeper. Um we could probably have a whole discussion just around this feature of the story and what it might suggest for like, you know, who is determining the basic things a person needs to know about the world as they become super smart. What framing devices are being used to teach this stuff and and all these types of questions. I mean, I I think that this Whatever this device is and whoever's behind it is probably better than, you know, giving MIT, giving a robot the whole Internet and then that robot turning into a sociopath. So, <laughs> you know, I think we're we're in better hands in the early uh, 60s than we are now. But in any event, um, I also want to emphasize the way that Keys is invested as part of the storytelling process, uh, maybe part of that empathy building as well in what I'm going to call the phenomenology of intelligence, in what it feels like to be smart or to become smart. One of the ways that Keyes does this is, well, by having Charlie explicitly wonder out loud about what it feels like to be smart, but then also having Charlie recognize things that he thinks are dumb or stupid. So we have a, a language shift in this section from where Charlie is wondering about what it feels like to be smart to pointing out things that he thinks are dumb or stupid. And so, yeah, all of this is stuff
0: that we'll have to uh, keep in mind when we get to our discussion. Like you, Brandon, I was really struck by Charlie's desire to know what it's going to feel like to be smart. I also was really struck, just generally speaking, about this story as a whole, about how much there is about measuring intelligence and quantifying how smart someone is, with all this business about uh, IQ values and so on that just, it felt like a totally alien world to me, even though I actually remember this from my own childhood being like a real thing. I'm so glad that we don't think of this way anymore. We don't talk about people's intelligence this way anymore. I hadn't realized how much of a shift that had been in our own culture during my own lifetime, but that's a shift I'm very much in favor of. Keyes even builds uh, a critique of that into the story by
1: having one of the test administrators being like, oh, this IQ stuff is nonsense. <laughs> you know,
0: right. We can't really measure it. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, which it, it totally is, of course. And uh, yeah, we can take that up later. Let's Let's get into the next batch of reports here. The next report begins on April 21st. So- The discovery that people have been making fun of him is really still raw for Charlie, and and we're going to return to that. But first, let's actually just chart his intellectual progress. These reports read very well now, and we learned that Miss Kinion is working with Charlie on high school level material, and he's even about to start learning foreign languages. Next week, he's also going to begin on college-level material, though Dr. Strauss has made Charlie promise not to study psychology until he gives him permission. And Charlie continues to be tested. Uh, He takes another Warshak test now, but this time he understands what it is, and he gets pretty upset when the person who administers the test says that he had explained the test to Charlie in the exact same language that he did this time because Charlie feels like he's being tricked or or has been tricked. But of course, it is simply that Charlie is now able to understand the concepts behind these tests, and he wasn't able to understand them before. Doctors Strauss and Niemer then take Charlie and Algernon to the American Psychological Association's annual conference, and they create uh, quite a sensation there, though we don't get any more detail than that. We don't really get specifics. And then, finally, by May 15th, Charlie has surpassed the intellects of Drs. Strauss and Niemer and is shocked—I mean, shocked, I tell you—to discover that their expertise is so small in scope and that neither of them can read Hindi or Mandarin. But now let's turn our attention to what is going on in Charlie's life outside the lab— Charlie devises a new way to line up the machines in the factory where he works that will dramatically increase the productivity of the factory and, and save the owner of the factory $10,000 a year. Uh, and so that owner gives Charlie a $25 bonus. And that was on April 25th. But then by April 30th, Charlie has quit this job. Acquitting was not Charlie's idea. It was his coworker's idea. All but one of these co-workers signed a petition demanding that Charlie be fired. And the one employee who did not sign this petition really levels with Charlie that his intellectual transformation is unsettling. And she compares Charlie with Eve eating from the tree of knowledge, uh, though obviously this co-worker here named Fanny does not, I think, quite have have this quite right, I will (laughs) say. (laughs) But at any rate, Charlie writes, "'They've driven me out of the factory.'" Now I'm more alone than ever before. Now, this continues a few weeks later when Charlie goes to a restaurant all by himself and observes people making fun of an employee with an intellectual disability. And the real issue here is that Charlie found himself laughing at some of the jokes. And suddenly he is furious with himself and he berates the other customers at this restaurant and berates them for their behavior there is one more thing to report about before we come to the end of these two entries, and that is Charlie's relationship with Miss Killian. Charlie invites her on a date, and they have a a pleasant time. Three weeks later, they are on another date, and now it's clear that Charlie has become too intellectual for her. She's not able to talk with him about his new interests, and he doesn't know how to meet her where her interests are. But on the first date that they go on, we learn a bit more about Drs. Niemer and Strauss. And specifically, we learn that they don't really get along and they have some serious disagreements about the experiment that they've done on Algernon the mouse and on Charlie. Uh, Dr. Niemer, uh, he's the psychologist. Uh, Dr. Niemer wants to publish their results right now. But Dr. Strauss, the neurosurgeon, he wants to wait until they are sure that the intellectual transformation will keep, that there won't be some kind of regression here. And we also learn that Dr. Niemer is under pressure from his wife to obtain or really just some fortune and glory. And that, <laughs> that need to get fortune and glory for his wife is what's behind his impatience.
1: Even though Charlie is presented or aware of the details of this apparently pretty bad relationship between Dr. Nehmer and his wife. He doesn't let that information, that knowledge, we might say, make him jaded or cynical about romance because right in this section, we see him fall in love with Miss Kinnian, though he's unable to really do anything about it. Um because once he starts talking as simply as he can about the overlap of mathematics and classical music, he realizes that, you know, as you pointed out, Glenn, they are just on really different pages about what basic things in the world are, what basic interests can be. So if we're tracking the phenomenology of intelligence here, the feeling of being smart, Charlie's hit this point where he's learned so much about Certain topics that he's forgotten even what the basics are. And so it's really hard. Um, you know, this is why it's really hard to teach somebody uh, the simple basics of a field if you're like a really high level expert in it. But Charlie's situation, I think, is worse than that. By the time he realizes that he doesn't know how to talk to Miss Kinneon, he's resorted to relying on a book to teach him the proper technique of semantics. So that he can communicate with the average person. He's left everyone behind. So what's going on here is that Charlie has kind of forgotten even the basics of being a person, which might include just simply being present with somebody who you like, listening to them. Uh, but what charlie 's doing instead is is really trying to demonstrate or perform his intelligence, and then he 's also trying to acquire and synthesize various techniques that he 's learning that will teach him how to be a a good person again, a good conversation partner, how to demonstrate care to others so he 's feeling more and more alone. And then, not only that, he's mediating his relationships with others via technique, and this is always a bad idea, right? In other words, like Charlie's at the point here, um, he's doing like the super genius equivalent of reading a pickup artist manual and then hitting the bars, right? So he's he's in a he's in a rough place,
0: I think, intelligence wise. I mean, the transformation that we've seen in Charlie is the equivalent of going from you know being a, a child to an adolescent to an adult in just a matter of days, which is, is not a good way to do it for for anyone, you know, wh- wherever they might be starting with their intellectual ability. This is not a good way to go through it because you miss all of the experiences that really let you hone your emotional intelligence and your social skills and so on. And Charlie just hasn't had any of that. And so, even as we see Charlie being a a victim of a lack of empathy by other people, now we're seeing him get to a point where he is struggling to empathize with other people himself, right? The ability to feel the same way that someone else does to put yourself in someone else's shoes to 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 think about it or to speak about it metaphorically and so he has to go get these books about how to behave in the world how to exist how to interact with with other people and of course these these types of manuals are Real Keys gives us the specific name of one of these books that I didn't look up. It probably is actually the real name of a real <laughs> book. There are a lot. I'll have to say there there are a lot of these manuals. I I remember seeing a lot of these in used bookstores. I imagine that people are still writing this type of thing. It's probably a fairly fairly successful type of thing. But there's a classic right called you know How to Win Friends and Influence People. That might actually be a book about how to be a con artist or something like that. But maybe that's kind of what <laughs> all of these books are, or about picking. People up at bars, I suppose, as you suggested, Brandon.
1: Yeah, I think I think you and I are fairly lucky, and to some degree, that we've never f- felt the need to to dive into these types of books to help us in uh, social situations. I mean, my my response to most situa- social situations is to stand in a corner uh, with a drink in my hand and wait for. Uh, the party to end, but (laughs) (laughs) you're a little more gregarious than I am. Uh, I want to talk about this Rorschach test business for a minute in this section here, because Keys threw in some weird code-like stuff that I had to do research on, and now everyone is going to suffer for it. Uh, Those notes that we find in the text here, that Charlie doesn't quite know uh, what they signify, really signify that Charlie is Uh, at the point of taking the second test that he's at the point of approaching average or maybe even above average intelligence. So we have those letters like WF plus whatever. Um, So the first batch of letters that we see here for those who are reading along mean that Charlie used the whole blot to give an answer that he saw the form of an animal. And that is more or less that plus sign uh, means that this answer can be categorized in a normal interpretation of the card. It could even be thought of as correct in in some level, if you're thinking of it in those terms. The next one signify that DD, uh, signify that Charlie used an unusual section of the ink blot to see a form and that he saw an animal detail. Uh, I'm not sure what ORIG means. It might mean that it's an original answer for the test giver. Um, Again, we see then later on that the whole blot was used, an animal form was seen, that minus that we see in that next batch of letters means that this was incorrect or uncategorizable, something along those lines. And then the th- last one, that SF, means that the negative space of the card was used to determine a form and that it's a normally or typically seen object. So thanks for bearing with me. I had to do the research and... um That's what all this stuff is. That's what all is going on here.
0: I think we have all seen Rorschach tests in movies at at the very least, right? I've never, I've never taken one and I've never really thought about them as a, a serious endeavor, a serious attempt to do some kind of psychological evaluation of somebody I guess when we see them in movies they always strike me as being kind of fantastical and kind of silly I guess but actually your explanation here of of how these are marked clinically made me at least think they might be fun to do at parties so I don't know next time next time we're hanging <laughs> yeah. out you might find yourself on the other side of a Rorschach test yeah yeah I hope not I don't know how uh, I don't know how accurate they
1: are but you know like everything else that our minds are able to do, the testers can create categories and patterns all day, and maybe they mean something. Who knows? Uh, let's talk here a little bit about the end of the 12th report now, where Charlie is at the point of being a, a super genius. You know, he's far more intelligent than any of the doctors who created and enacted this procedure that he underwent. As you also hinted at, Glenn, Charlie is becoming a, a little bit of a jerk, lacking, lacking empathy himself he says he when he he's laughing at this busboy and catches himself that he realizes what he was doing was laughing at himself, his past self. And so what we see here going on emotionally is that Charlie is beginning to have a lot of shame around who he once was. Um, if we want to think about this in terms of the reference to the knowledge of uh, the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, You know, this tracks with that story. I don't think that Keyes is using the story from Genesis here as an analog, but I think he, you know, in revision, Charlie feeling shame here, it was too good and gaining knowledge, it was too good to pass up the reference to the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. He had to throw it in here. Um, But we do learn more about Charlie's innate motivation, uh, that thing that made Dr. Nehmer uneasy. Charlie saw in his early days, um, as he's reflecting on them, that he saw he was at a point that he was not like other men and that he wanted to be like them. But now he surpassed them all and he's leaving them behind. Um, he's even left Miss Kinney and behind. But now he wants to help out with the research. And at the end of this section, the word genius is repeated a lot. And to me, this is a really key part of the story um, and what we're going to really be focusing on in the discussion, because we have to think about what Keys and Charlie mean by
0: using this word so often. There is something, too, I think, in this invocation of, of Genesis and the, the tree of the knowledge of uh, good and evil. Keys. Commenting on some anti-intellectualism that we find so often in American culture, that maybe is something that we we can talk about in the discussion as as well. Kind of you know where Keys is landing on this, what actually he's trying to to do by giving us these characters at the the factory. I think they're working for us on a number of levels, but we are quite close to the end of this story here. We've only got one report left, so I'm going to take us there. And this report covers May 23rd through July 28th. Algernon the mouse is not doing well. He's biting people. He's not eating anymore. It's clear that this does not bode well for Charlie, though no one will actually say this to him. But Charlie now moves into the lab. He just moves in as a working scientist. He's trying to figure out what is happening to Algernon and also how to stop it from happening to him. But he doesn't succeed. And his own scientific research now disproves the hypothesis of the experiments and concludes that the surgical technique just cannot be used on other people. By June 10th, Charlie is reporting symptoms of intellectual deterioration and by June 23rd, he can no longer read foreign languages. Algernon dies, and Charlie buries the mouse in the backyard of his boarding house, and he puts flowers on the grave. Uh, These are the flowers for Algernon that are the title of the story. In July, Charlie is just laying around all day, at least according to his landlady. I suspect that that's not really an accurate depiction of what's going on, but that's how she sees it. And so she gets a doctor to come over, And this doctor now treats Charlie as, well, as if he has an intellectual disability. Charlie also returns to the factory and gets his job back. A new guy there, someone who's been hired since Charlie left, uh, this guy makes fun of Charlie. But now, the same workers who used to get Charlie drunk, they intervene on his behalf, and they tell Charlie to let them know if anyone gives him a hard time. And now we've come to the last entry, July 28th. Charlie has been regressing such that he is now returning to the life that he led before the operation. And he's even forgetting that time has passed, that there's been anything between. And so he goes to Miss Kinnian's class, even though he's not enrolled there anymore. And Miss Kinnian gets really broken up when she talks with him and she even runs out of the classroom. Charlie realizes his mistake and he leaves before she comes back and now he decides that he can't live in New York City anymore, that he, he wants to move someplace where people won't know his story. And the entry now turns into a letter to Miss Kinion. It's a letter in which Charlie says that he's going to keep trying to be smart. And he's going to keep practicing reading. And then he says goodbye, and he asks her to tell Dr. Niemer not to be such a grouch when people laugh at him. He says that uh, if he can learn to laugh with them, he'll have more friends. And the letter and the story ends this way. Please, if you get a chance, put some flowers on Algernon's grave in the backyard.
1: Yeah, it's a, it's a crushing ending, though. There are other things that really, I think, apart from this this melancholy end here or this uh, sad end that I remember particularly from the the film version of the movie. As I said, that I watched in eighth grade, yeah, the second most impactful moment from that Cliff Robertson film that I still carry with me to this day as, as a as a I don't know maybe a traumatic image almost in my mind. Like I, I go to it often it is a scene where Charlie in, in the movie um, and you know it's written so evocatively in this story as well, can feel his intelligence slipping away. He remembers what things used to be like when he was smart, but he's not smart enough to be smart anymore. And it's it's such a tragic image, uh, both in the story and the film that shows and demonstrates what it's like to have knowledge of what's behind of what's beyond that sort of limiting horizon that we all have to use a sort of philosophical term so that we, we know that there's something beyond that horizon, but there's no way to reach it. The horizon isn't say like a, a wall that we're boxed in by that we don't know is even a wall, but literally a, a line that we can know there's something beyond. I tried to watch the Cliff Robertson version of this movie again, but I don't think it's streaming anywhere. There is a Matthew Modine version of the movie that was made a decade or two ago, and I started it, but I had to turn it off after 10 minutes. I thought the performances were a little embarrassing and hokey. Um, but I, I mean, based on that, I'm, I'm almost afraid to go back to watch the Cliff Robertson version, even though he won an Academy Award for his performance. But right. In any event, this ending is a gut punch. We learn in this section also that Charlie's dad abandoned him and his mom probably as we pick up on because of Charlie's slowness. Uh, Charlie goes back to being someone who can only understand that sense of Bonhomie um, as being a good thing rather than understanding any sort of social context behind it. So as we head into the discussion, Glenn, I wonder what your first encounter with this story was. Did you have to read it for school?
0: I did not. Something we should say just to clarify is that there are two different print versions of this story. One is the short story that we have just read, and then the other is the novel version of this the you know, also written by Daniel Keyes. He took his short story and expanded it into a novel that was published in 1966. The short story won the Hugo Award for best short story in 1960, then the novel won the uh, Nebula Award for best novel in 1966. I think it may have also won a Hugo uh, as well. So there are those two different versions of the story. And then, yeah, there are a lot of different film adaptations as well there's this film with cliff robertson that you're talking about there from 1968 then yeah there's this i think the year 2000 film with matthew modine but then there's all <laughs> sorts of like other adaptations tv adaptations or things that are loose adaptations and homages to them there is definitely a line about flowers for algernon in buffy the vampire slayer it's a line that xander says and I had never read or seen any adaptation of this until actually just a few years ago when I read the novel version of this story, even though it's, you know, proliferates uh, that, the, you know, I knew the title, I knew the name, I understand, I had a basic sense of what it was enough to get, you know, to get Xander's joke essentially right but I had never read this before and I, I found it's a shame that I I hadn't I I found the novel to be utterly heartbreaking I found this short story also to be heartbreaking but but actually perhaps more intellectually focused than the uh, the novel was and I I'm, I'm really really glad to have read them but I've been very interested Brandon to discover that you read this in school but it you know, nobody knew about this story when I was in school. And I think that you're right that one of the things that makes this worth reading in eighth grade is that a part of the story at least is about bullying people who are different from you. And that is something that kids that age need to get some empathy for. It's a It's a social problem that kids that age are encountering. So I'd actually like to know about your experience reading this in school. I mean, did it have any kind of impact on you? Did it make you think about things that were going on in your life or reevaluate the way that you were behaving or the way your friends were behaving?
1: I, I'm not sure that it did. It's really. I, I when I look back, I mean, I was kind of. Um, I was a probably pretty mean person, probably until my junior year of high school or so, when I was like, oh, I'm actually being mean to people. I'm not being funny, you know, because it was funny what I the things I was saying. But, um, you know, when I got like, I would get into fights and stuff. Like that's why in middle school I wasn't really in the. Track of like the the smart kids, so the story I think carried with it the fantasy element of like r- recognizing in middle school, especially that there were these kind of different tracks that you could end up on, um, and then. Really, the lessons being hit home, the things we talked about most in class, especially as it related to the film version, were empathy and being kind to others. I mean, I always had an affinity for and and got along much better with... The kids, uh, when I was on that that track, than when I was, uh, you know, in tenth grade or so, when I was like, oh, I can do math, you know, I do know how to write a sentence without making a lot of errors. So yeah, it, it's really weird my my own personal history with this story, but th- there's a lot that have it's always stuck with me that feeling. I think especially as I mentioned that there's something beyond the horizon and and not quite knowing how to reach it. Uh, is an image that's always really stuck with me. I will say, I mean, this story is parodied in it, It's Always Sunny in Philadelphia episode, an episode called Flowers for Charlie that was written by the... Um, two head writers of game of thrones i think they they came on board to write an episode or pitch the it's always sunny sky guys an episode uh to do and they they decided to do an homage to flowers for algernon um that's a pretty funny episode and i think you know, Charlie definitely lives more the Charlie on that show lives more in a box than in a than in any, any sort of place with horizons. And that's that's the joke of the episode. Yeah, but my my feeling was here that this story was always just about empathy. Like I have always thought of it as just being about empathy, the story, but there's so, so much more going on here. And I do think it had an impact. Our English teacher in eighth grade was the best. In the school, and I think really took on those more difficult groups of students on purpose to kind of walk them through these stories. And she definitely had a major impact in in my love of learning, uh, my love of stories and their power uh, to change. And I think our class did kind of have a little bit of a a change after we covered this story. Like people were not as uh, disengaged, maybe as they were from beforehand.
0: Yeah, that's awesome to hear. I, I I wish that we'd read this story and and talked about it in in eighth grade or or seventh grade is really probably when I would have needed it. Although I I was fortunate to have the the intervention of uh, Mr. Williams, my gym teacher and track coach, to uh, tell me to stop being one of these types of co-workers that uh, that Charlie writes about here. Something uh, a conversation I remember all the time and one I'm supremely grateful for. But I wish that this is the sort of thing that we could have all been talking about together as a group. I think that's one one of the things that adolescents really struggle with is that no one will talk about their feelings to each other and having having uh, some way to facilitate that would actually be a really a really great thing right that that teenagers especially young adolescents so frequently feel alone in the world, which is something that we get a lot of in this story. Uh, But actually if you could just talk openly and honestly and articulate your feelings with your your friends and your classmates, I think you you would find, right, that everybody is feeling that way and that actually you can all get through this together and come out better for it on the other side. This story seems like it's a great way to do that. You know what we read, not in middle school, but in the first year of high school was Lord of the Flies, which maybe is meant to do something similar, but I don't think that's the it didn't have a good effect on (laughs) us, right? No, that emphasizes uh, the
1: power of tribalism and becoming a tribal leader, you know, so maybe really different than uh,
0: being the funniest guy at the dough factory. Yeah, I just in terms of thinking, you know, as someone who is a teacher now, and of course you have some experience with that as well. Lord of the Flies is a great story. I'd love to revisit it. I think that actually that would be a fun a fun novel for it you would, and I yeah. to cover. But I don't I don't know that teenagers should be reading that book. Like they should be reading this story. Yeah, we we
1: read Lord of the Flies in in tenth grade, um, and I don't remember much about it except for our English teacher, probably who had read it dozens of times. Thought sucks to your ass, smart was like a really funny phrase. And she kept saying that. Um, so that's what I remember from Lord of the Flies. Yeah. But yeah, no, this story is so, I think such a good story to one, you know, introduce kids. To speculative fiction, um, which so many kids find retreat in, and to make it okay, you know that you're reading that as a class, that there's some value in it as you know a cultural artifact. Yeah, but then also as as a story of empathy. But uh, what jumped out to me most in this reading is how full of how full the story is. in certain, like, American cultural assumptions, it really surprised me. You know, apart from, uh, you know, a certain reliance on the concept of genius as it's rooted in, I think, American transcendentalism and maybe a few other philosophical ideas. I mean, certainly in Emersonian, uh, Ralph Waldo Emerson's concepts of genius are found here in this story. I think this story, you know, also takes on American exceptionalism, in a way. What I'm talking about here, I want to talk about the context of this story, I guess. Um, But so, yeah, this story also takes on American exceptionalism in the way that Charlie is shocked that his doctors don't engage with the foreign literature of their own work. You know, and what's worse is that the doctors are doing something pioneering in science, Niemeyer and Strauss, but they are trapped in these petty disagreements and difficulties with their personal relationships. We will talk about genius and intelligence in, 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 in a minute, but I want to ask you, Glenn, here, um, if any specific cultural contexts jumped out to you in this story, now that we're, I don't know what 60 years removed from this story being written, but really if you see Keyes sort of dinging his culture's attitudes
0: of American exceptionalism. I think there is definitely something to that. I I actually was surprised to find this attitude in the story at all, but this is definitely an era in which Americans certainly regarded themselves as being the pinnacle of scientific discovery and inventiveness. I mean, we're we're in outer space now, and we're working on getting to the moon. We're not far from sending the first human beings to land on the moon at this point. And there is a real sense, right? It's an important part, actually, of American culture at this time in the early phase of the Cold War or the you know, post-war era that Americans can do anything they set their mind to and here in this story we've got keys saying actually some really great work is being done in India and China and these two scientists can't even read the journals that this work is being published in and if they could their work would be better and maybe they wouldn't be making mistakes and then and then science and and human knowledge in general would be more efficiently and, and more effectively advanced. That's a, a, that was a really surprising critique and, and subtly, you know, in, in, in the story, but I, I was surprised to find it here at all.
1: It really shocked me to see this, you know, and, and and you know, I use the word pioneering there on on purpose because that pioneer spirit and American exceptionalism kind of go hand in hand. Like we can go anywhere and do anything um, because we're the best, and we're bringing, you know, it's kind of uh, a sort of cultural uh, colonialism is too loaded of a word, but a cultural exporting that we believe, you know, and especially I think in the after the Second World War, there was still a strong strain of belief that we were. The top culture in the world, and uh, the things we did were the best, and it's still here today. Like, what we don't need to learn other languages, right? Like, we don't start children learning other languages in first grade, which is the right thing to do because they can um, just pick up the language instead of it being. Taught to them, you know, with grammar rules and all that stuff, which would be, uh, you know, something you'd tack onto a a middle school and high school level course, like we do with English. Uh, These attitudes about American greatness are really here. And that Daniel Keyes is saying, now, now hold on a minute. Why? Maybe he's not asking why we have this attitude, but maybe he is a little bit looking at um, the cults of uh, the the culture of American greatness and uh, American exceptionalism, and you know how do we even get to say we have this attitude when we're not even able to really engage with other cultures. Uh, we've kind of closed ourselves off. those That's another sort of horizon that we've limited ourselves to. And I, I was surprised to see that here, really surprised in this story.
0: Though, of course, I think it is also equally pointed that who's not mentioned here is the Soviet Union, right? It, it, it doesn't <laughs> right, matter right, that Niemer right. and Strauss can't read Russian. That doesn't matter. And I think that that, that might actually have been more the way that a contemporary reader of this story would have, would have seen that line as that, you know, cause this is a story that is set like five or six years in the future. And the, this phase of the Cold War was fairly tumultuous, in fact. And so uh, perhaps there's something embedded there saying that in five or six years, uh, the Soviet Union isn't going to matter either, and that it really is actually India and China are going to be, you know, those are going to be the the close competitors in science and technology for the United States, which I suppose is true now, uh, but was not true in 1965, when it still was the Soviet Union, for sure. Well, I want to
1: return to this concept of genius that I think is the the core question of the novel. You know, I think there are some assumptions around genius as a concept that permeate the story, and I want to get into some nitty gritty philosophical concepts, though they'll still be very broad <laughs> uh, of genius that I think Keyes is relying on here, but. I want to focus on the story here. So the first question I want to ask you, Glenn, is why do you think Nehmer and Strauss want a world of supermen? Why do they want to create world of supermen? And why is genius tied to this concept of superiority?
0: Right. I mean, the basic question that I have here is what are they up to? we we don't really know. We don't know what the goal is. Like what is their research what is their research specialty? What are they trying to accomplish? Are they actually trying to create a new species of super people or are they trying to help people with intellectual disabilities? It's not clear to me which of them actually really is their goal. I do suspect that it is make a new species of super people. I think that the idea is human beings are pretty smart. We're the the smartest creature on the planet, right? We're the best tool users there are. The tools that we've invented actually already have us in outer space. We are going to be on the moon soon. That's inevitable. Uh, Dolphins are pretty smart. They're not going to the moon. Chimpanzees, pretty smart. Uh, They're not going to the moon, and at least not until we have a nuclear apocalypse that then turns them into something more akin to humans and well Charlton Heston will put a stop to that anyway. Right. That we're we're smart. Imagine, imagine if we could be three times as smart as we are. We could you know where where could we go then? You know, the moon doesn't have to be the limit. It could be the start. And wow, that's an attitude that terrifies me.
1: Yeah. So I want to pick up on a few things you said there. I guess I'll come back to the promise of genius in, in just a second. Uh, but I want to hone in on what you were thinking about with what their uh, research goals are. And I they use the word Superman here. They use the word Superman here. This is still at a time, I think, when this word would have been tied to nietzsche's writing to some degree though of course we have the the comic books and we know that uh keys was tied into that comic book community a little bit but i think he's using it in the sense that would have tied nietzsche's work to nazism and eugenics via his you know sister's uh, nietzsche's sisters uh work uh, redactions and and so forth that ended up getting translated um into English that maybe Keyes would have been able to read. I don't know if he could read German, but this to me is a sinister term. You know, Keyes isn't Keyes isn't attacking DC comics here, right? Um from, from working with Stan Lee. So I think this is absolutely a story that is referring to the horror of having a super race. And in the background of the story is a real darkness that when we when we get to the end of the discussion we'll be thinking about why why Charlie couldn't remain smart as a as a
0: narrative problem of of keys right well, yeah. And this is something that we do see all over the speculative fiction of the 50s and 60s. I mean, for me, anyway, the the pinnacle of this is Khan from Star Trek. <laughs> I mean, most people know Khan from the 1982 film, The Wrath of Khan, but that's a sequel to a 1967 episode of the original series. The idea being that uh, not through surgery, but through eugenics, a race of or species of super people have been created created and uh, in the 1990s, they almost took over the entire planet, but that were defeated and uh, uh, cryogenically cryogenically frozen and blasted into space. And well, Kirk discovers them and then they're going to try it again and so on. This was a thing that people really were taking seriously. I mean, there was certainly the idea that human beings are a kind of unfinished clay that can be perfected into something better, something super, was a prominent idea from about 1870 through most of the 20th century, but culminating of course in the mid-part of the 20th century. I mean the Holocaust itself is part of this story. And it's not really until the aftermath of the Second World War that our attitudes towards the virtue and morality of creating super people begins to be questioned. Like there's this Actually, a good idea is this. What should what is this? What we should be doing? Should we be, should we be sterilizing people that we don't want to reproduce? Should we be forcing people we do want to reproduce to reproduce a lot? Should we be attempting to modify people's bodies through, uh, of course, in this case, it's surgery because we don't really have a, a science of genetic engineering yet. But of course, we're going to get there. Genetic engineering would be the probably the way that we would do this now. This is a big topic in the mid 20th century. And there are people who still think that in the 19, late 1950s, that this is a good idea that we should be doing this. And this is not really a cautionary tale about that, right? Because Charlie doesn't develop into some kind of superhuman person, or he doesn't develop this super intellect, and then, you know, try to take over the planet or do something horrific. So it's not a cautionary tale in that sense. But it is a cautionary tale in the sense that we see him actually be just as ostracized by being super intelligent, hyper intelligent as he was when he had a lower intellect.
1: Yeah, that that's absolutely right. But the, the these doctors do have this this goal, and what they have is a framework of understanding genius about the promise. Uh, tied to genius that you talked about that's that's kind of still part of American culture I mean what you were talking about about this idea of perfecting humans that there's still this malleable clay uh, is 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 a driving force behind you know transhumanism as a movement where if we can you know incorporate ourselves with perfect code or body parts that don't fail um, then we'll be able to achieve our our fullest potential and this is uh, something I find to be extremely distasteful but you know i think it goes back to this idea that there is this genius it's it's part of this maybe uh, american philosophical movement of the american transcendentalists and really ralph waldo emerson was the writer on genius here he was really into this idea he thought of genius as this guiding spirit of the soul or of the person that if followed clearly, and if you were allowed to follow, would always bring something genuine and new. Really, the newness is what matters into the world. So genius then for Emerson isn't necessarily tied to intelligence, but to expression, to the the pure expression of one's truest self. And I mean, this is really Clumsy language, but I think we can find elements, or at least elements that are analogous to to Emerson's thinking here in the story. So, on one level, we have to see that Charlie's genius—if we're using this Emersonian framework here—that Charlie's genius is tied to his motivation. So, I I brought up this up a few times here, Glenn. um, But what do you think Charlie's motivations are in this story, and do you think
0: they? change as he becomes more intelligent. I think they definitely change. I think that what motivates him at the beginning or what you know what what makes him want to volunteer for this procedure, this experimental treatment is that he is is not some desire to become super or to become a genius. It's a desire to be able to connect with people on their level. He knows that he is different from most of the other people in his life, that he's on the outside in some way. And I think that he he wants to learn how to do the things that he sees other people doing around him. One, I think he's curious about what those things are, but I also think he wants to be able to have deeper friendships with people, to have real relationships with people. That seems to be his his intrinsic motivation here. But then, yes, as he develops this super intellect, He gets this brief period where he actually is in a kind of community and society with people. It's like a few days where he gets like one good date with (laughs) Miss Kinion and is on good terms with his co-workers at the factory for like two days before they turn on him. And then now that he is super smart, this is when he starts his own transformation towards mad science in some way. This is stymied by the realization that he is going to die. Uh, that he's going to lose his intellect and is probably going to die from this procedure the same way that Algernon seems to have and wants to try to do something to forestall that, but then also does seem to be motivated by the idea that he wants to make his experience and also his impending death meaningful uh, that it will have it will make some contribution to human knowledge, that it won't have been for nothing, right? That seems to be his motivation at the the end. So yeah, he goes through several different motivations here about why would a person want to be smart? what is uh, what is genius for? What does genius mean? You know, what are we meant to do with it? He is several different people throughout this story
1: the the heartbreaking element of this story i think is is knowing that charlie isn't really able to follow that guiding spirit he's hampered in every direction he he doesn't even have time to figure out what he really wants to contribute to the world uh, as as an intelligent person, um, as somebody who has you know super abilities uh, in intelligence, he's not even able to find this out because as soon as he reaches this level where he's really able to explore his interests, he's confronted with the fact of his impending death and decline, and so th- th- there's this sense that if we're looking at this story as keys. On one level, um, using this in American transcendentalist concept of genius, that Charlie's genius could never even be discovered, though his intellectual gifts may flourish. because he is now tied. His gifts as an, uh, his intellectual gifts are now tied to self-preservation and his survival, rather than, to use another kind of Emersonian term, his ability to have self-reliance. And I think that's just a brilliant way that Keyes is looking at, one, the way we tie s- uh, genius to intelligence, but then also saying it's not enough to be intelligent, because you have to have the means to explore your genius. Having a good mind isn't enough. And and part of the heartbreak of the story is knowing that Charlie is, is crushed from... He's, he's crippled before he's able to even walk. His legs are bound together before he can even learn to walk.
0: And it seems to me that the thing that Charlie really wants, that the, the, the Charlie that we really get to know, I think, the best in the story is just to have a relationship with Miss Kinneyan right and and, and it's it's really it's really
1: tragic, you know because this procedure this this uh, use of technology to integrate with technology in some way to become better than isn 't enough it 's not going to make Charlie more human than human, right? because the things that matter are community relating to other people, learning to care for others, learning to be cared for uh, and and so I think that 's another level at which we see this reference to the Christian conception of the fall that we can 't fix ourselves right that 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 's not going to be enough to make ourselves super smart might come with its own drawbacks. And death is always going to be... We're always going to be confronted with death. So unless you're going to remove death from the equation, um, these technological uh, solutions are never going to confront the fact that we fail and miss the mark as human beings, right? because maybe what it means to be human is to fail in these huge ways or to be confronted with our d- impending death or you know something along those lines and i so i think Keyes is really at least looking at in terms of looking at american transcendentalism concepts of flourishing and concepts of the genius is actually really engaging with a rather uh, sophisticated discourse on these matters in this story
0: I do think, also thinking along these lines of comparing Charlie and his superior intellect to doctors Niemer and Strauss, maybe Niemer especially, is that Dr. Niemer is a grouch and probably should learn to laugh at himself a little bit more. And he would have more friends that way and so on. that that perhaps is is true. He's certainly written that way from Charlie's perspective. And so it's easy then to think of Dr. Niemer as something of a villain, or at least as something of a jerk, right? Who we wouldn't want to hang out with. But he's, it's really, but it's really just that Dr. Niemer is human, that he's got other thing, that there are other elements in his life, other factors in his life that influence the way that he behaves. That it's he's not just some pure person of science who wants to science for the sake of science. He is also someone who's trying to have a career, that he wants the accolades of his colleagues. He has relationships with other people who Want things from him, expect things from him that bleeds over into his professional life, and so he's fully enmeshed and entangled in a community, a, you know, a web of people. I guess overlapping communities, and that's something that Charlie, when he realizes that, also just looks down on, looks at that with disdain. And and to, and to me, that was a real heartbreaking bit here, where it has actually cast Charlie in the same. Role, or at least a similar role, as that of his co-workers at the the factory, where he's looking down on these scientists for being humans, for having relationships with other people, and goals that are not just pure science. I, I found that kind of heartbreaking. It is really
1: heartbreaking, especially when you look at, you know, the character uh, from literature that Charlie most relates to is somebody who has been. Uh, abandoned or left alone from a community, and is 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 stranded. I guess is the best word on a desert island, and is truly alone. I mean, uh, you know, we know that Robinson Crusoe meets a monkey friend, um, but that's not. And, and and maybe that same type of relationship that is what Charlie is feeling. That his best hope for community is people, but they're monkey friends to him in the same way. You know, he, but he's ultimately alone with the only, only, only person with the intellect he has. He's been stranded and now he can only interact with monkeys. And so it's, this is a brilliant story. I mean, it really is so full of other, uh, so, so full of brilliance. There, there are other concepts of genius at play here that I want to touch on. One is, uh, that that one, one concept of genius here that Keyes also looks at. Uh, that we mentioned is the adherence to technique or the application and understanding of technique, you know, using knowledge as a tool to navigate in the world, to mediate the world through uh, the use of. To mediate your relationship with others and your encounters in the world through the use of tools and using knowledge primarily as a tool to do so. Um, and then the last uh, the concept of tech uh, the last concept of genius here was related to that promise, that hope of genius. And it's the hope that genius or a really high intellectual capability would create some kind of new horizon of understanding and interpreting the world, to use maybe Heideggerian terms here. Um, but the idea is that something, someone with a great intellect would... Lead us to a new level of understanding the world, and it has this kind of Hegelian whiff of progress to it. That 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 the hope is that if we apply this broadly into everybody, one of these people with their intellect will lead us to the golden age. Did you feel like one these were here, but really it, that if Keys was supporting any of these concepts of genius in the story, or do you find the story to be really more critical? Of a kind of cult of genius that we still really appear to be participating in today to some degree with you know hero geniuses
0: like Elon Musk or Bill Gates so I've talked a little bit about the speculative fiction and maybe especially science fiction context for this story in terms of uh, of Star Trek but maybe we should talk about it a little bit in the context of Dune as well right which is, <laughs> uh, co- comes along not too long after this story that is messianic right it is exactly this kind of genius that that Paul Atreides is right and so yeah i think here as well that Keyes is saying no 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 hang on that's not that's not a good idea i I think that that is actually the plan of Nemar and Strauss that that's that, that's sort of what they're after here is to create all these, you know, is to create a number of super intellects in the hopes that uh, at least one of them will solve a lot of problems that the world is is having. But I don't think that Keyes thinks that that's how we're going to find our way out of this at all. And I think that this is actually why Dr. Strauss and especially Dr. Niemer are humanized so much. And I think that maybe even this is really a big part of the point of making this a story about empathy, that really the superpower that humans have is not intellect, but empathy, right? That what matters is emotional intelligence, the ability to care for and care about other people, to see the world through their eyes and to want everyone to flourish, that that's actually how we get to a better world. It's, it's not through brilliant scientists doing brilliant science.
1: Uh, Now I think it's a really good time to mention just in in light of of what you said that, uh, you know, I read an interview uh, from Daniel Keyes that was uh, from 1997, I think it was in a Locust magazine. And he mentioned that his editor for the short story wanted him to change the ending so that Charlie has a happy ending. He gets married, he gets to remain a genius. But Keyes refused. And I guess we're both in agreement that he was right to do so. And I think you gave an excellent reason narratively why the story would fail if Charlie succeeded. And, you know, I I really feel that Charlie's operation being successful would be a bad deal for all humanity. I guess we both really feel that way.
0: Yes, I definitely do. I I think that that would totally undermine the point of the story. So I'm glad that (laughs) I'm glad that Keyes was able to win that argument.
1: He did. It took him a long time to win that battle. I mean, the story was... I guess not, you know, in terms of submitting a story and getting it published, didn't take that long, (laughs) you know, but it was something he had to fight for this ending. And I, you know, I really believe this has to be the ending of the story because, you know, I mentioned at the top of the discussion here that this really is empathy, the story, and it really is critical of, you know, Not just American exceptionalism and, um, the the superiority complex we might feel with that accompanies a pioneering spirit. Um, but also that these way that we conceptualize genius and intellect and worship it as a culture is maybe it's, it's a bad deal. You know, it's playing the wrong hand, basically. And, and we're going to, we might win that game, but, we're playing the wrong game and so we might lose the game we should be playing uh in emphasizing genius and intellect uh above uh, care for others community um understanding you know what it takes to sustain uh, a local community all of these sorts of things the science can give us an education of and on you know but um maybe shouldn't be the end goal of of being of of a culture as well well, the last thing I want to talk up here uh, is ostensibly we're a science fiction podcast, and and we haven't talked at all about the science fiction elements of the story. There were really only two that I saw. One is the operation itself or the technique, really, the operation technique that turned Charlie into a genius. And then the sleep machine that teaches Charlie subconscious how did these elements work for you, you know, just as encountering this as a sci-fi story, it's it's in a science fiction magazine. Obviously you'd see why this story might get published for its other benefits, but just as a science fiction story, how did these elements play for you?
0: I mean, these elements work great. I mean, you know, this is science fiction in the sense of it's about science and scientist. It's certainly a near future story. It's, you know, so near as to be contemporary. And so it is speculating about something that isn't possible yet, but that might become possible. And is definitely speculating about things that that people are actually working on. And so in that sense, it is science fiction as a type of social commentary, science fiction as a mirror for ourselves you know, that we can, we can take a look at ourselves in and see if we like and, and decide if we like what we see or not. And, and I think it is an exemplary work of that type of science fiction for sure. Yeah, I really,
1: I really loved this, uh, you know, subliminal speech, sleep machine. It
0: just reminded
1: me how big uh, subliminal messaging was and the idea of the, that the subconscious could be taught. And instead of it just being this like raging ocean of chaos that, you know, we just aren't aware of because it wouldn't benefit us to engage with it, I think that much. Um, yeah, it's just, I love it. I love that sort of engagement with, you know, popular psychology and the idea, and these ideas of, you know, you can teach yourself. While you sleep, I don't think anything like that. I think the last time I saw that was in like a Freaky Friday movie, maybe the Lindsay Lohan <laughs> one. I can't remember, um, but yeah, this is such a such an old chestnut of science fiction that nobody really talks about anymore or or uses as a uh, technique for storytelling. And I just loved seeing this, you know, sleep machine here. <laughs>
0: <laughs> but, yeah, I, I'm pretty sure that subliminal learning has been utterly debunked, right? I mean, maybe it hasn't. but I'm pretty it has sure it been. has. You know, you know what
1: hasn't been de- debunked? Being explicit about what you want and communicating that simply and explicitly to other people, uh, which is why you know advertisements are now like, "You really want this car?" Instead of just suggesting that you want a car by having a woman in a bikini walk around it, you know. Yeah, they just tell you. They just tell you what to think. Right, they tell you what to think. That works, right, <laughs> right. But none of the subliminal stuff really does. Uh, but yeah, that this was this was super cool to see. They probably should have had Charlie's subconscious being full of you know wisdom literature instead of more science stuff. But I don't know. They did what they did. They did the best they could, I guess, at the time. Well, I, I you know on that note,
0: that's gonna do it for this episode. Once again, I'm Brandon Buddha. And I'm Glenn McDorman. As always, you can find us and our other creative projects at claytemplemedia.com. I want to say thanks again to our really generous Patreon supporter who commissioned this episode along with several others. I was so glad to have read this story and and so glad to have gotten a chance to talk about it with, with Brandon here. I really enjoyed as well thinking about the use of this story in our education. I I feel like I missed out, but I was really glad to hear Brandon's experiences with that. So just a joy to, to read, a joy to talk about. So I'm so very grateful for the commission. Thank you so much. I really am
1: too. This was such a joy for me to uh, reread, but really rediscover in in, in a totally different framework than what had been taught to me. Um, I loved this story. I loved getting the opportunity to read it again. So thank you so much. But until next time, we greet you and say farewell.